This podcast was recorded on August 10th, 2018. The views and opinions expressed herein are as of the date recorded and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities. Such views and opinions may differ from those of DoubleLine Capital or its affiliates and are subject to change without notice. DoubleLine has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. Welcome to the Sherman Show. Today we have Double Line CEO Jeffrey Gunlock. Hello. Hey, Jeffrey. And today I thought we could maybe discuss some market truisms, Jeffrey. So things you've learned as pearls of wisdom out there over the years, things that appear to be truisms, maybe are not backed up by empirical or anecdotal data. And, um, you know, kind of giving you an open rein there to start off what's kind of on top of the mind when it comes to truisms. Well, I've In the last few years, I've become increasingly aware of the contradiction that has developed between investor attitudes regarding the efficacy of active management versus passive management. And I've noticed, I've been at this business about 35 years, and I've seen this pendulum swing back and forth over pretty long arcs of time. So I remember back after the 1994 bond interest rate rise, suddenly everybody wanted passive bonds. They had been surprised by the movement in parts of the bond market, and they just said, you know, I think I'd rather just be safe in investment-grade bonds instead of in a more active product with off-index product. And that became very, very popular. And then starting about five years ago, the pendulum had fully swung in the opposite direction, where really, not surprisingly, that most institutional investors and and many uh, RA types as well decided that the metrics of a bond index fund were woefully unattractive. And you can't really argue with them. The duration, as we've shown in our charts, had reached its all-time highest level, and the yield had reached its all-time lowest level, which, of course, we call it the Sherman ratio, the yield to the duration, or the duration to the yield, either way you look at it, had become as unfavorable as at any time in history. And yet, during that same moment uh, that people were looking for anything but a bond index fund, There was also observations that equity active managers had been underperforming the S&P sequentially year after year after year, and we started to see a tremendous surge in equity indexation. And these two ideas were sitting and continued to sit partially right next door to each other when they're completely contradictory. If active management is such a great idea relative to a bond sector, it's kind of weird that you think active management is the worst possible thing relative to an equity sector, but these are simply p- pendulums that swing. Uh, and so uh, I think one thing that became popular after the taper tantrum in 2013 was the unconstrained bond fund category, which is particularly strange when you compare it to the move towards passive investing, because nothing is more active that I've probably ever seen that's still contained within a sector like the bond sector than unconstrained bond funds. I mean, you have no idea what they're doing. And it's kind of the epitome of investor folly to say, I don't like the bond market in an index fund basis because I can see that the duration is high and the yield is low. And I don't don't like that in the market. And yet I'm interested in something I know nothing about. I'm more comfortable knowing nothing about what this investment firm or this investment fund is doing rather than knowing what they're doing. Because if what I know 
is unattractive. And so you're just taking this huge leap into the unknown. And so a lot of people say that I'm a contrarian, but I'm not really. I, I almost call myself a contradictionist, if that's a word, where I'm just looking for ideas that, are, that contradict logic or contradict you know, sober thinking and yet have become warmly embraced. And I thought that that was true of the unconstrained bond fund category when it became so popular in 2013. And I think the attraction of, hey, this is a category that has the potential to always go up. We know that the bond index isn't always going to go up because it has a fixed profile. And so on days that interest rates rise, clearly you're going to go down. And in years that interest rates rise sufficiently, you're going to go down. But there's this weird belief that although active managers maybe, uh, broadly speaking, don't have a tremendous amount of skill on average, it's weird that people think that if you go unconstrained, suddenly there's going to be this gold mine, this deep, rich gold mine of skill in active management. We've seen a couple of examples. I'm not going to name any names here, but in, during the interest rate decline of 2014, which we kind of famously predicted, we're about the only bulls out there. I always tell people, if you want something really interesting, Google in the time window of the fourth quarter of 2013, Google interest rates are going to fall. And what's fascinating is you only get one hit on that, and that's, that's me. And you get hundreds of hits on bond prices are going to fall. You actually get exactly the opposite. But when rates did fall in 2014, there was a big popular and constrained bond fund that had horrifically negative returns because they had a negative duration and rates fell. Meanwhile, this year, we see a relatively stable yield environment, and we have a, a sort of infamous unconstrained bond fund that actually fell over 7% in terms of total return when most funds in a sort of a flexible category, unconstrained category, were actually up. And so by degrees, I think the scales will fall from people's eyes and they'll realize that there is no magic. There's just you know, process, philosophy, people, and you know, kind of empirical experience that, that guides thinking. So there's a lot of things that are, are contradictory in the world today and always will be in the world of investing. Yeah, well, I, I think when you pointed that out to start with, you know, I think there's people get comfortable in one market. So they may focus on the bond market, they may focus on the stock market, and they try to apply that same thinking. Well, if it works well here, it must be applied across every single asset class. And so um, let's talk particularly about indexation. Yeah. You're talking about the unattractiveness of the bond market. It's something that we've talked about many, many times to investors over the years about the construction of the index. Maybe you can point out some things that aren't in indices. Also, talking about uh, why people like market cap weighting, perhaps in the stock market, makes sense. You don't have to rebalance or readjust. It kind of moves for you. Um, But in the bond market, it eventually disappears every day, right? Because the bonds mature and and they shorten up. The bond indexation industry really just borrowed concepts from equity indices, which go back, you know, the Dow Jones Industrials go back a very long time. And capitalization weighted indices have become more the norm. Not every index is capitalization weighted in equity. The Dow actually. The Dow, the Dow isn't, yeah, right. But certainly many of them are. And it does, as you suggest, it does sort of make sense because the larger companies are a larger part of the economy. And betting, investing in stocks is really kind of betting on the economy. And when the economy is going well, you know, stocks will do well and the big companies will probably do well. And by the way, your interests are aligned, at least in theory. The shareholders of of Apple, uh, you know, they're aligned with the CEO. I mean, the CEO owns shares. He wants them to go up. He wants the company to do well, and they're completely aligned. But when you think about it, and I've been talking about this for decades now, a capitalization weighted index like the now Barclays Bloomberg AG, we'll just call it the AG for brevity, you know, capitalization bond weight indices are kind of a uniquely bad idea, particularly when you get into the corporate bond market. And I talked about this in 2002 when Ford and GM 
were borrowing tons of money because they had all these problems, and yet nobody thought that they were vulnerable. And the indices were getting bigger and bigger and bigger in terms of Ford and GM. And I was of the opinion that Ford and or GM was actually going to go bankrupt, which of course they did when the, when the recession hit. But it got to the point where when, they start, when the trouble started to come, they became so big and they got downgraded into the junk bond market that they actually temporarily changed the junk bond index to a constrained index because otherwise, like you, you, otherwise you would own so much Ford and GM. And when you think about that, that's an extreme example, but you can apply that broadly to credit in the fixed income market. If, when you get sectors that are over leveraged and they're issuing more and more bonds because that's the form that the over leverage takes, why would you want to own more and more and more of an, of an increasingly uh, distressed credit? I've often told the kind of uh, hypothetical humorous anecdote of what if my brother-in-law comes to me and he wants to, you know, he lost his job and he's starting to struggle to make the rent. He comes to me and he says, can you give me 50 grand? A loan, of course, it'd be called a loan. And I don't really want to do it, but to keep harmony in the household, I give my brother-in-law the $50,000 and no surprise, six months later, he needs another 50 because he hasn't, the job hunt isn't going all that well. And so again, I give him another 50 grand. I'm going to me 100 grand and uh, he still doesn't have a job. Well, a year later, guess what? He stopped looking for a job because he doesn't need a job because he's got me. So now he's, he, I've got this perpetual loan going on and I start to realize that I'm never going to get this money back. He's never going to pay it. Well, that becomes the case when you have over leverage in various parts of the economy. And the most egregious example of this, of course, was at the root of the global financial crisis when you had subprime bonds and Alt-A bonds and even prime bonds being issued with very questionable underwriting standards, and they grew to a $2 trillion securitized market. We're not talking about a private placement market. We're talking about Q-sipped assets that were all investment-grade rated, and by their attributes were totally appropriate for inclusion in the then Lehman bond market index that turned into the ag that we know today. They never included them in the ag. And is a $2 trillion market. It would have been something like 20% of the official Lehman index if they had included it. And since we were involved in mortgage-related products at the time and other products, but some were mortgage-related, I went to Lehman's index committee uh, in New York City one day and I said, you know, guys, why is it that you don't put a $2 trillion sector that meets all of your criterion in the index? I mean, why is, is that? And they, they basically said, because it costs too much money. It's a heterogeneous asset class. It's hard to track. There isn't tremendous availability of, of daily pricing that's reliable. And it just costs us too much money. It's, it, we don't get paid for producing this index. We get maybe goodwill. Maybe it helps us with relationships. But that's all very squishy. We can't really charge for it. And we're wondering why we even bother doing this index at all. But certainly, we're not going to plow more money into expanding the index. And I actually said to them, well, but... What about intellectual honesty? And this was a real lesson for opened my eyes about what I already suspected about Wall Street is the head of the committee actually started, he burst out in laughing. He couldn't control himself. He actually got up and laughed all the way out of the room saying, intellectual honesty, ha, 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 ha. And so that increased my, my cynicism about you know, motivations on Wall Street. But it was interesting that they didn't include it. Now, when you think about it, what a favor Lehman Brothers did to the bond market investors who are index aware, which is most of them, by not including this $2 trillion market in the Lehman Ag. Because as we all know, during the global financial crisis, those bonds dropped by, in the fullness, probably 50% at a minimum. 
and if you went across the capital structure. And if you think about it, in 2008, if they had intellectual honesty and they had included the $2 trillion non-agency market in the index, the return would have been about 10% lower during the crisis because it was 20% of the market dropped roundly, just for convenience, 50%. So there you go. There's 10% loss. So in 2008, a true index fund, as defined by Lehman Brothers, would not have been positive. And I think it was positive 2 or 4% can't remember which, but it was positive, low single digits, it would have been negative more than 5% during that year if it was a truly capitalization-weighted index. So it doesn't make any sense at all. And I actually think that when we think about the index construction and equities being cap-weighted, it actually is somewhat optimal, as we suggested. There's nothing really wrong with that. But in the bond market, as I just this anecdote shows, there's something very wrong with a market capitalization-weighted index. And I think that's the reason why active bond management has stronger potential for success than equity market indexation, because the index itself, the, the ag, is suboptimal, as this anecdote describes. And so it's, it's interesting that you, I actually think that it's not surprising that active management in bonds has shown to be more successful than active management in stocks, although I think part of that is cyclical in nature. When you have a credit market cycle that's extending like we've been in really since 2011, it's really a, a tailwind for most active bond managers because as, if you really analyze the data, most of them are kind of perpetually long corporate bonds. And, and so they live and die by the credit cycle. And we have always tried on our investment team, as you know, not to fall into that trap of being you know, kind of a frozen clock that uh, works when the sector's working, the beta's working, and then you just apologize for it when that beta isn't working. Yeah. Well, I've noticed too that recently, it's probably been the last year or so, that AQR put out some papers and research, you know, trying to attribute that. And so building bond factors, you know, this whole factor, investing has been very popular in the stock market. So why not extend it to bonds? Why not extend it to commodities, FX well, we, and the we, likes, right? We, we've done some of that, trying to analyze bond funds, active bond funds returns. And what you end up finding is that if you use do the factor analysis, very few active bond funds actually have a so-called alpha. Right. Once you control for really credit risk, really is, is a big thing. Well, and, and so I think that's another idea of like people saying, okay, the indexation works, this factor analysis works. Well, if it's good for one market, it's got to be good everywhere else. And so- as you think about that, you know, you, you touched on the unconstrained stuff. The factor stuff, I think, extends from smart beta, right? This whole factor idea, smart beta, it's these amorphous terms. But why do you think that people give bond managers such leeway then? Or is, is it just hope over the experiences as you've used before and, and some other I, I metaphors? Think, I, I think the reason they give them leeway, as I sort of alluded to earlier, is because what they know in the past when they didn't give leeway you end up with something that's extremely index aware. And I remember in the 90s and to the 00s, it was all about tracking error. That term always always befuddled me, why it's called tracking error. Yeah. It's as if we're trying to match the index and we've, we failed to match the index, so therefore it's an error. I call it the tracking statistic. You know, how close are you, are you to the index? But in those days, people were satisfied with the Lehman Aggregate Index. It met their investment goals. It had a yield of eight broadly speaking. And for years, when you looked at rolling returns, three and five-year returns, five-year in particular, of the category of bond managers and indices, just index fund, they were delivering an 8% return. First, the yield was eight, so that worked. And then the yield was dropping, but the yield was dropping, so there's a capital gain. 
And so it turned out mathematically that the 8% was being generated. So you can imagine if you're a a pension plan investment committee, for example, and you're sitting there and you've got to go through your your quarterly results of your managers, which is probably a long, rather boring meeting, and you get to the bond section and you're like, wow, this is really the low point, right? We're going to talk about these bonds. And then you go, hey, it's 8% for the last one, three, five, and 10 years. Any questions? No, let's move on to something more interesting, like like commodity hedge funds or something that's that's sexier. And, and so it just sort of worked. But then we get to 2012, and uh, more importantly, July of 2016, you look at it and now the returns aren't 8% anymore. And you have to scratch your head and say, how am I going to turn this 2% yielding index fund into my actuarial assumption of, let's just say, 7 plus? And you go kind of, it can't happen. So what am I going to do? Well, I'll have to give the bond managers more leeway. And that's reinforced, particularly in 2016, by the fact that the non-index sectors were giving you a positive payoff. They were actually generating higher returns. And so that becomes a momentum effect that, that now it's safe and good and it enhances returns. And it went all the way to its logical conclusion with unconstrained. Don't even tell me what you're doing. It's, it's funny, uh, Sherman, we were looking just this morning, you and I, at some statistics of there was a search that some public fund did for unconstrained bond managers, and they showed a number of candidates that they were uh, selecting from. And the duration range, there were only five of them. So who knows what the range would be if you did the fullness of the category. But the range in duration was eight and a half years between the highest duration, which was six, and the lowest duration, which was negative two and a half. So clearly, you don't know what you're going to get. You you don't know. I mean, what if, what if the guy who has a duration of six tomorrow morning decides he wants to be a duration of negative two and a half. You don't even know what you're rooting for. And you're hoping that, and you facetiously, I think accurately say that it's the triumph of hope over experience, kind of like a second marriage, the triumph of hope over experience, and that it's going to somehow you know, work out to the positive all the time. But you just simply don't know what you're going to get. So I've talked about this in the past. When unconstrained bond funds became popular, we understood the reason that people wanted unconstrained bond funds. They were worried that rates were going to rise. And they were right. I mean, rates have risen, not mightily, but they've risen in a noticeable way from July of 2016. And you know, we realized that people wanted defensively oriented bond funds. They didn't want the Sherman ratio of the, the ag, who would, at the lowest in history. And so what they, what they really wanted was something that had the potential to not have negative returns in a rising rate environment. And I think that that's, that's really what this category is about. But as the market cycles, and we're not so definitively in a rising rate environment, which, as I kind of famously predicted in July of 2016, that we were at the bottom in rates, in capital letters, underlined, italics, the bottom, the, that dangerous phrase that has populated the graveyard or the investment management industry with more corpses than anything else, this is the bottom in rates. Well, I think it was pretty definitively was the bottom in rates, unless we go into some sort of wild debt deflation spiral down, that's going to be known as the bottom in rates. But now that we're up you know, at 3% on the 10-year, that's not a high rate, but one can make the argument that there's potential for profit in the bond market. I'm not predicting it exactly, but there's potential for profit. I mean, you could go back to 2%. You could, you could make 20% on the long bond, as Lacey Hunt is so fond of saying, and he's right. You could. I'm not saying you will, but you could. But what if the rates go up to uh, to 6%, like I think, and I've talked about uh, maybe in 2021 or so. Maybe it makes sense to be going along the bond market, and unconstrained will have a different type of appeal than what it does now. But I, I think it's been a mixed bag in terms of success. But it's it's absolutely clear that in an unconstrained or less tethered to the index 
bond strategy, the most important thing by far is skill. And the only way you can think about skill is from experience. And people that have experienced and successfully navigated through real problems in the market. And I, I think that's one of the things that we try to do at Doubleline that we're proudest of is that we've managed to sidestep a lot of these things. I mean, uh, people criticize me. They say that I, f I find, you know, seven risks for every one that exists. But that's my job. I mean, my job is to, is to risk manage and to be out there worrying about my client's money and my money because it's my money too, right? But to say, I've got to risk manage this thing. And so we completely sidestepped the subprime problem, which allowed us to pile in in uh, March of 2009, which turned out to be the bottom of the market, where we went to 50% of our holdings in these bombed out mortgages. I mean, uh, w those opportunities are have not disappeared. They're not, they, they might be on the endangered species list, but they're not extinct yet. And we're going to get these types of things. And when that happens, you're going to see the type of dispersion of return, not just in unconstrained funds, but in all bond funds, where you know these, these perpetual credit funds are going to have a problem. It's already starting. You know, we talked about this a year ago that when rates rose and they started to rise almost exactly a year ago, September 7th of 2017 started another leg of rates up and we started to see corporate bonds showing their true colors because they have in the investment grade sector a very long duration. And we see that they're the worst performing category of the bond market since September of last year. And, and it, it's, it's, it's only going to get worse. You know, when these things start to widen out, it's funny. People say, well, you know, it's a small underperformance, but then a few months or quarters later, they look back fondly at that small underperformance because it's turned into a very large underperformance. You know, when people, have, uh, there's, I've observed repeatedly in the hedge fund industry that these funds that try to always be up a percent a month or something like this, they can actually kind of pull it off if the market cooperates with a low volatility. And then all of a sudden you see that it's not up one for a certain month. It's like down two and everyone freaks out. They can't believe it. They thought it was going to go up every single month by 1%. It's down to, and I've seen this multiple times, is that what ends up happening is you learn several weeks later that it's not really down to. It was actually marked to model. They didn't like the marks that were coming in because the market was getting sloppy. So they thought that they were absurdly low. And so they said, well, we're going to do it to our model. And the next thing you know, they admit that they did it to the model. And the negative two was revised to down 20. That happened with David Eskin back in 1994. It happened with the Bear Stearns hedge fund in 07. I've seen it multiple times. And what ends up happening- Toffee and Tannen, I think, with those guys, yeah. It, it, the negative 20 turns into a bankruptcy letter about one or two months later uh, when, when that starts to happen. And those, those risks are out there. And it's really important, obviously, not to cross the double line of risk, which means that you can go into this meltdown scenario, which means being on the right side of the valuation trade. So you, you were talking about you know being labeled as a contrarian and- I think people have still still are gassed at you know throwing out the idea that the ten year in the next three years or so could could have a five handle or six handle on it. I don't walk, know. Walk us through, walk us through your logic there too. Why would you be surprised? I find that to be so strange because it's exactly happening. It's exactly happening. People act like six percent some high number. No, it isn't. Six percent isn't a high number. I mean, the ten year Treasury very often follows nominal GDP, and what it really follows. And I almost don't like saying this because it's almost like a secret because it's so valuable, but it really follows the average of nominal U.S. GDP in the German tenure. I mean, the, the correlation is remarkable. It only breaks down during recessions. And this isn't just for the last few years. It goes back for decades, that if you average U.S. nominal GDP in the German tenure, you get a very close 
estimate of where the U.S. 10-year might be. Well, the German 10-year is down at 40 basis points. So we know that that's being suppressed and that that's a very artificially low rate that's manipulating things. But U.S. nominal GDP for the second quarter of this year, the preliminary first number was over 7%, right? So if U.S. nominal GDP is at 7 it's not so strange to be thinking about the U.S. tenure being at six. But beyond that, it's already started to happen. When I announced in July of 2016 that I thought that this could happen, that by 2021, the term would be at 6%. One of the reasons I said that is I was so uh, taken by the unanimity of opinion that the U.S. tenure was actually going to go to one. It was very highly embraced. When you watched financial media, you had just about every single talking head guest come on saying, yeah, it's going to one. And the reason it's going to one is because they're negative in Germany. They were at negative 20 or so at the time. And because of that, it has to pull ours lower. And I thought that that was just absurd, given the fundamental setup of how inflation was going to be rising almost certainly into the first part of 2017, which it did. I think it actually went up to about three uh, in 2017 on the headline CPI. So I said, you know, I think it might go to six. And that's 1% per year, basically. I mean, the consensus was at one. The, the tenure was at 135 at the time, but the consensus was it was going to be at once. So that was what was embedded in the market's psyche. And six would be 500 basis points, one to six. That would be 1% per year for five years. Well, guess what? It's now two years later. And guess what? The tenure is up at three. So it's gone from one to three in two years. So we're fully on track for that 500 basis point rate rise. So what, one thing I think it's most interesting in analyzing bond fund results is what have they done for the last two years? Forget about you know the great credit market of uh, 2016 into the first half, of th- first three quarters of 2017, and the great credit market in 2012. I mean, that's history. Let's talk about what's been happening recently. Well, spreads are so tight on virtually all bond sectors that to think that you're going to get a large profit from spread tightening is, is almost lunacy. So what's been happening for the last two years is what's dominated things is duration. And we see that rates have risen by 200 basis points. It's interesting and informative to look at what bond sectors and bond funds and bond strategies have done over those two years, because that is probably your best proxy for thinking about performance on a go-forward basis. And you look at some funds that are significantly negative over that time period, and then we look at what we've done um, managing around this process of risk in the market. It's a negative bond market. There's plenty of large negative numbers that are out there, Particularly, you know, I, I mentioned my friend Lacey Hunt. I mean, I'm not, I, I have a lot of respect for him. I like the guy. I think he's very smart. But, you know, if you have a 20 year duration and rates go up by 150 basis points, it's not real pretty. So I, I think it's worthwhile to think about where you are in the cycle and to mutate your analysis uh, using not just arbitrary time periods, but ones that could be more representative and insightful about what might happen in the future. You know, I was, it was funny. We were been working on updating some of our databases and updating some of our materials for describing our products. And one thing that I really like using is mutual fund data in analyzing uh, manager strategies, because I can't think of anything that is more solid than mutual fund data. First of all, I'll acknowledge that if it's a $1 million fund, it doesn't matter, but let's say it's a 5 billion plus, right? That's a pretty big one-stop shopping. Certainly if it's 25 billion plus, you have a very good example of what that manager is doing. And mutual fund data is regulated to death. I mean, you've got FINRA, you've got the SEC, you've got outside directors, you've got uh, all kinds of audits going on. But you also have an incredibly intense pricing regime that gets audited very carefully, in our case by PwC, who, by the way, told us 
when they did a review recently that they have never seen a better pricing. They do 40% of the mutual fund industry. They audit 40% of all the funds, PwC. They said they have never seen a pricing regime that's as robust as double lines. They have zero process improvements that they can recommend. But I mean, that just kind of shows the, the, the veracity potentially that you can have in mutual fund data. And it's daily. And it's daily. And everyone pays the same fee. And there's no potential for manipulation. So I was I, I've always liked using that. And one of my uh, consultant relations people told me, well, a lot of centers of influence don't really like mutual fund data. They like the public sponsor, the PSN data, public sponsor network, plan sponsor, plan sponsor yeah, network yeah, yeah. data. And I, I just said, why? why? Why would you like that better? It's, it's completely self-reported. There's no enforcement rules. All clients play different fees. And I, not of course, not a double line, but at another firm I worked at, I saw an intense manipulation of the composite data. There was actually a year. I, I'll, I'll never forget this because it was so appalling. There was a year when they made up the composite completely and they reported a number that was higher than any account. And we got an RFP from a public fund and they said, what's your composite number? And uh, what's your highest and lowest return of the components, the constituents of that composite? And we didn't know what to do because the highest account was lower than the composite. So we didn't know what to do. It was because they used a different account every month in the composite. They shuffled accounts in and out every month to you know, manipulate it higher. And so what they did, unbelievably, is they just made it up. They just made up a high number that was higher than the composite so that they wouldn't look like you wouldn't get caught with their fabrication. Well, I noticed that when you take a look at mutual fund data and then you take a look at the PSN data, not surprising what you see is that the PSN data is always higher than the mutual fund data. And why would that be? Why would it be that, let's just say we take data points that are mega-sized mutual funds, 25 billion and higher, why, why would that not be exactly consistent with what they're doing in that same strategy for an institutional book of business? It should be exactly the same. But the fact that it's higher, to me, strongly suggests, being a cynical person after 35 years in this business, strongly suggests that there's less veracity in these self-reported numbers. In fact, I once put a complaint in to GIPS, you know, the GIPS compliant aspect that so many RFPs require, and understandably, there'd be some controls on things. They say, we insist on GIPS compliance. Well, I knew that one manager, I had some particular insight, and I knew that their composite was not GIPS compliant because they had had a complete turnover of the investment team. There was no one that survived. There was like a 20-year number of a very strong number on a strategy, and there was nobody that survived. And that, by definition, makes you non-GIPS compliant. And so I actually reached out to GIPS, and I said, you know, the validity and the benefit of this GIPS compliance is being denigrated when people lie about it and are claiming GIPS compliance when we know with certitude that they're not GIPS compliance. And what GIPS said to me was, sorry, we're not an enforcement body. We, we're just, it's all self-reporting. And if an entity says that they're GIPS compliant, then there's no check. And even if we can sort of prove that they're not, there's no consequences to it. So I, I just believe that it makes tons of sense to go for the most audited, regulated, and daily NAV data that you have, which is so much richer. We look so much at calendar year data or monthly data, but things change during the month. You know, I always have to laugh about performance attribution. 
which is something that people uh, are attracted to a lot. You know, that's one of my big pet peeves. Yeah. Well, you know, I can see why. I mean, I guess there's some information in performance attribution. But what I, I, I have one answer when it comes to uh, a- attributing performance of an active strategy. And it's really pretty simple. It insults people, frankly, but uh, they shouldn't be insulted because it's actually the most honest and robust answer. The answer that I give is everything that we did that was different from the index that worked helped us. And everything that we did that was different from the index that underperformed hurt us. And that's your performance attribution. And they don't like that. They, they, they say, well, I want to know whether it was duration or currency or yield curve or credit. And I sort of sit back and I say to myself, why? Why do you care about that? I mean, are you happy if it was duration and sad if it was credit? Are you happy if it was POs and unhappy if it was IOs? If it was currency, are you glad that I had the currency call right? Are you sad that I had the currency call wrong? Why does it matter? But performance attribution, you know, is, is so popular. And yet, forgetting what I just said, which I think is, is highly valid, the fact that it's very often monthly or even quarterly data, it, it creates all kinds of slippage and false signals. Because after all, if you're an active manager, what if you change your duration by two years in the middle of the quarter? And you say, well, rates fell for the quarter, and they started the quarter with a duration of four. And rates rose, so it worked. Okay, but what if we change to a duration of six the first day of the quarter, after the, after the, 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 the quarter-end period? You know, what if we change July 1st? And then you say, well, you know, these guys are geniuses on, on duration. Well, actually, no, we're not. We, we screwed up. We extended it right before the rate rise. But the attribution says that something went wrong. In fact, most attribution models are basically a black box system. They put in you know, various aspects that don't even come into the thought process or the decision tree of the active manager. I have to laugh when I see stuff like skew you know, in, in some of these black box performance attribution models. They, they, they say, there's so many basis points that are skew. In my life, I've never met a bond manager that's intentionally taking a skew bet. It's just, it's just, it just comes out as a residual. Everything's duration and what percentage you have credit and to a certain extent curve. And if you look at the analysis attribution-wise, that's like 95% of it. And in this environment, probably 80 of that comes from duration bets. Today, it's a, it's right? a huge bet. You know, the funny thing about bond management is a lot of people like to have, they, they call it a consistency of process. And if certainly that's highly desirable, but that doesn't mean a frozen process, right? Sometimes... The way you outperform, if you take like a, a 2010, 11 type of period, the way you outperform is bond picking. There's massive inefficiencies in the aftermath of a recession, particularly a credit crisis type of recession of the OOs. There's massive opportunity. Bond A versus bond B can have very, very different outcomes, even though they sit right next to each other in the same sector and have many of the same attributes. But then as you go through a low volatility period and a stronger economic period and spreads are all tightening, the markets become incrementally much more efficient. And bond A versus bond B has almost no differentiator. What starts to matter sometimes is duration. The direction of interest rates sometimes is everything. I remember I was talking to one of our big clients who's been with us from the very beginning in several strategies back in 2016. And he said, what's your game plan for outperforming? You know, what, what's, what type of securities, you know, we're worried that security selection isn't, isn't as, doesn't have the efficacy that it might have had, you know, seven years ago. I said, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, when you get into a low spread environment, low volatility environment, it's true. Bond by bond, it's not it. Sometimes it's more the macro. 
And I'll tell you how we're going to outperform. We are convinced that rates are going up. I know that nobody believes this, but we're convinced. In fact, I announced to our team July 6th of 2016 in our global bond meeting, which by pure chance happened to happen because it's a monthly meeting. It happened the day of the low in interest rates at 132 on the 10-year. And I said, we have got to go to maximum negative on this thing. If we're not maximum negative now, I don't know what when we ever will be because I can't, I've never seen in 30 plus years an environment that was so obviously overbelieved in terms of the perpetuation of, of, of low interest rates. So sometimes it's duration. I said, that's, you sometimes have to, have to protect your portfolio from price losses through, through dur- duration management. And, and the investment community's acceptance for active management of duration has ebbed and flowed over the course of my career. There's been time when I started in this business, that's all that people did. That's all they did. It was going from T-bills to long bonds because interest rates were changing by hundreds of basis points per year. Hundreds. I mean, I started this business, it was the 10-year treasury was at 14%, up from 10. So just think about the price volatility. So all that mattered was manipulating your exposure to interest rate risk. And people would literally go from a duration of zero to, to long bond futures and do that stuff. And then as time went by and the bond market quieted down from volatility, suddenly interest rate timing got a really bad name because people learned that if you had the wrong step in the dance and you had a duration of 30 and rates rose, it wasn't a pretty outcome and they wanted to control risk. And so it started to be, oh, we don't want you to have large duration swings. And it was very common for guidelines to be written that your duration had to be within X of the aggregate index. And in fact, it was not uncommon for X to be 0.5 years. 0.5. 0.5. It was more common to be one year. It was very uncommon to be more than one year, the flexibility were given. So people wanted very tight control on interest rate risk. That's kind of melted away as interest rate risk has not been a problem for years, really. And uh, I, I think because things do cycle uh, in a reliable way in this, in this industry, my guess is that the unconstrained bond category Going back to that, which you can probably tell that I'm not a huge fan of that being a, a long-lived theme. I think one of the reasons that it won't be long-lived is at some point, somebody's going to have a duration bet that's going to get completely smoked by the market. And there's going to be somebody that's not negative seven, which we see today, but maybe negative 27. And people will be afraid to open their statements. Yeah. So I think that you mentioned the statements there, the unconstrained category. I think that's what it is, as you say. You kind of have these truisms. You know what duration is. You know what yield is. But you're just hoping when you open that statement, it looks completely different than the market, right? It's that lottery ticket. Unless the market's chance. up. You want it to look a lot oh, like the market course, when it's yeah. up, but you want yeah, right. different when it's down. Unconstrained bond funds, one thing I, I could say in favor of them is that at least they are truly not a sector fund. Truly not a sector fund. Yeah, there's positive and negatives to that. You don't know what you're getting, but you have the potential to be in the right beta and out of the wrong beta if you're, if you're doing it right. What's funny is how people don't understand that every single fund that has a benchmark index that's being monitored for risk-adjusted returns, every single fund is a sector fund because that index defines a sector whether it's a junk bond sector index or whether it's the, the, the 
Bloomberg Barclays Ag. It's still a sector fund, just like the S&P 500 is a sector fund. Everything is a sector fund. All right. Well, we're running out of time here. And uh, I don't think I ever actually introduced Sam Lau today. So hey, hey, hey. Yeah, OK, there, we're bringing him in at the end. Uh, Lau was on vacation. But he's yeah, here after I, I think he was asleep over there. Asleep that time. Yeah. yeah, I love it. <laughs> it's, it is bond talk. You yeah, know? Right. It's, yeah. It's, it's, it's pretty soporific. Yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, it's a, it's a thing we talk about all the time. So maybe one last thing before we, we let Sam do his thing real quick is um, if you had to think about a risk out there in the market, what is the one of the biggest risks that people are, are, are somewhat ignoring or or just uh, I, unaware of. Well, I just think it has to do with leverage in in the in the corporate economy and in the stock market system. If you look at margin debt in the stock market, it is incredibly high, which makes sense because the market capitalization has gone way up. The higher the market cap, the higher margin debt could be. But you know, it's it's suggestive of of a complacent attitude. And in the corporate bond market, I mean, the issuance of corporate bonds has been really something to behold over the past few years. It's really unprecedented. And the debt to G, the uh, corporate debt to GDP ratio is at the levels in the past that have been very problematic. And I, I, I think there's two ways to lose, really. One is rates rise, because investment grade corporate bonds have a duration of over seven. You know, it's sort of double the duration of what we think would be appropriate, you know, given our environment some, today. Some of the ETFs we realized, too, as we were looking through them last year, have durations like eight and a half or almost Incredib- nine years. In- incredibly high. And, yeah. and so if rates rise with spreads so tight, there's this uh, urban legend out there that the spreads will tighten and protect you from losses so that in rising rates, corp- investment rate corporate bonds are going to be your, ro- your road to success. <laughs> not only is that illogical, it's not working. Rates have been rising and they've been underperforming. So rates rising, you get you get uh, harmed on duration, and rates falling from this level needs it would be a complete psychological shift in the structure of the economy and the the health globally probably of the economy and would probably lead to a default cycle. So you have two ways to lose, and spreads are not going to tighten as they haven't. Rates have risen and they have not tightened. They've marginally widened. So I think that that's an underappreciated risk. Uh, that's in the market. And in addition to that, there's a, a lot of uh, a leverage in the system. Plus, I started following the stock market in eighth grade when we had a class about finance. And they said, pick a couple of stocks to follow every day and make a graph of how they were doing. And my uncle, uh, he invented Xerox copier. And so we had stock in Xerox. It was the one moment that we thought that we were wealthy because Xerox had done so well. And my father had bought it because he uh, believed in what his brother had done. And it was what, so I picked Xerox as my, one of my stocks to do this theoretical exercise. Little did I know that we were in the teeth of the nifty 50 at that moment was the peak of the nifty 50. Nifty 50 was 50 stocks were driving everything. And they were basically technology companies. There was, believe it or not, there was actually a bowling alleys mania that bowling was a hot stock because the people thought everyone was going to go bowling. And AMC, I think, had a huge was, was had involvement in bowling. But what I noticed in this exercise in eighth grade is that that Xerox stock just kept tanking. It was dropping a point and a half like every day. I think it started about 150. And I think and this was like a three month exercise in eighth grade. I think it was down at 50 by the time we were done. Boy, was my mother upset because we never sold, right? So for a moment, we actually felt like we had a little bit of money, but then we went back to not be able to afford, literally, we couldn't afford to do a clothes dryer. It broke, and we couldn't afford it. So we, she hung it. This is in Buffalo, right? So we'd, in the wintertime, she'd hang the laundry in the basement, which had a, a silver lining to it, because the clotheslines hanging in the basement allowed us to make mazes 
out of the throws that we put on the sofa because the th- sofa got threadbare and we couldn't afford a new one. So we would th- put, buy a throw. You know what a throw is? Yeah, it's like a big, a big, old, a big uh, sheet big kind sh- of deal. Yeah, right. And we had so many of them that we actually made mazes and we played tag. It was loads of fun and something to do in Buffalo in, in January. You know, and, so, and it's tons of fun. But anyway, we, we suddenly weren't, felt we had no money again. But I noticed, you know, Xerox, this, this disaster that occurred. Well, now it's not the Nifty 50. It's like the Nifty Five. Fabulous Five. Or Fabulous something. Five. I can't think of something that rhymes well, Why not? Five, the Fab yeah, Five. Yeah. Not the Fab Four, the Fab Five. And, you know, it just strikes me that that has a lot of echo from what we experienced. Where it ends, nobody knows. But as I pointed out, I find it fascinating. One of my best calls recently was one that I didn't even try to make. I was on CNBC December 13th. And, of course, they want to talk about your ideas for 2018. And since it was an hour show, we couldn't help but get to Bitcoin. And at that moment, Bitcoin was at 17,300, having fallen slightly from its high of nearly 20,000. And it was all Bitcoin all the time. Every guest, Bitcoin, Bitcoin. And they're saying, you know, what do you think about Bitcoin? And I said, it's a mania. I mean, and not only that, it's the poster child for speculative attitude, having gone up from, you know, 4,000 in August to 20,000 in December. And they said, well, uh, do you own Bitcoin? And I said, no, that's just not for me. It's just not in my DNA, that type of risk. But if you forced me to do something, I would short it. And of course, they laughed at me. A week later was the top. I think I said it was earlier. I think it was not yet at the top on that show. I think it was a week yeah. later. I think the top was actually the day they introduced the futures. Actually, I think that's right. And that was one of the reasons. Concept, that was right. one of the reasons that I was uh, so negative on Bitcoin. Not only was it had all the signs of a mania, but it also had a futures market, which, as we know, when they put out the uranium futures market, it was the top. Most people are somewhat aware of that. What people aren't aware of is they brought out bond futures for the first time in the eighties when early 80s, when the bond was at 8%. And weeks later, it was at like 10%. And I think it was a year and a half later, it was at 13%. So there's something strange about the futures markets come out after the mania has fully blossomed and usually marks the top. That certainly happened for Bitcoin. Yeah, I think the Fang Plus, uh, I think they introduced at some point, like late last year. Plus is good, right? Yeah, plus. right. I mean, why, why not they Fang, Fang plus, minus? plus, plus? Yeah. All right. Well, thanks, Jeffrey. We appreciate that time and uh, love the truisms here. We'll have to have you back on uh, again in the future to go through some uh, some more of these stories. But uh, Sam, before we get uh, let Jeffrey get back to it, uh, you want to do a round of Sherman Says? All right. Sherman Says. Both of you guys know the drill by now, I'm sure. So I give the uh, a term and you guys provide a response. So we'll start off Mr. Sherman. With share buybacks. Decelerating. And Jeffrey, dollar. Next big move down. Chinese uh, RMB, Chinese currency. Protected. VIX. We'll go higher. Country music? No. <laughs> Anchor bar or Duff's? Duff's. Sheridan Millersport. Copper. It's sick. Dr. Copper is sick right now. Uh, tr- we need trade peace. Trade peace to bring it, make a copper great again. Contrarian label. Partially true. Favorite beverage? Mountain Dew. 
We just got Mountain Dew in the office. I rediscovered it. I forgot how good it people is. are drinking it. Like yeah. just it's going it's, out of style. Yeah, it's it's been the highest very caffeine of any of any highest soda. caffeine and highest caloric intake. Probably less than Red Bull, but yeah. I think if people start pouring it into those see-through cups, they might think again. You know, seeing that green, it looks radioactive. I did read a factoid that said whether or not it's true. It was on the internet, so I believe it to be true. But it did say that uh, Mountain Dew was originally created to make as a mixer for whiskey to cut through the taste of whiskey. Really? Yeah. Sounds hard. It does not sound like a good mix. I had them both separately, but not together. (laughs) Um, Again, if anybody wants to give us feedback on that, trying it out there, let us know. Favorite sandwich? Tuna melt. Fallen angels? No such thing. Universal basic income? Coming. Gick changes? Painful. Yield curve? Flat. Corporate earnings? peaked well and not uh, not earnings but let's say profit margins have peaked and the last one for jeffrey double line love it all right well thanks again jeffrey gunlock ceo of double line thanks to sam lau he was actually sitting here the whole time so sorry for the lack of introduction today sam and again uh, you can find us on uh, itunes soundcloud and doubleline.com if you're looking for Uh, More episodes of The Sherman Show. We'll be back to you in a couple weeks. So thanks again for tuning in. The audio presentation represents Double Line's intellectual property. No portion of this presentation may be published, reproduced, transmitted, or rebroadcast in any media in any form without the expressed written permission of DoubleLine. DoubleLine has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. To receive permission from DoubleLine, please contact media at DoubleLine.com. Neither DoubleLine nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast and any liability therefore, including and respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage is expressly disclaimed. Double Line is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice in this podcast. The receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by any Double Line entity or individual to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any Double Line entity. The portfolio risk management process includes an effort to monitor and manage risk, but does not imply low risk. Copyright 2018, Double Line Capital.